Tonight's reading comes from Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 41. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went down to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and prophets had the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years... He endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, what do you suppose, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham, and you God-fearing gentlemen, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believed is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to 
we were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Amen. Our second reading continues from our first. It's Acts chapter 13, verses 42 to 52. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We have to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Richard. Let's stand and sing together number 520. Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. Unnumbered blessings give my spirit voice tender to me. Make known his might, the deeds his arm has done, his mercy sure, from age to age the same, his holy name, the Lord, the mighty one. Tell out my soul the greatness of his might, as Lay their glory by proud hearts and stubborn wills upward to flight. The hungry fed, the humble lifted high. Tear out my soul, the glories of his word. For is his promise and his mercy. Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord to change. 
you please be seated? I suspect the rulers of the synagogue got a bit more than they bargained for that Sabbath when they courteously offered the visitors from the homeland the chance to share a word of encouragement with the rest of the congregation. It was a generous gesture. It's like seeing a stranger in the congregation saying, do you want to preach a sermon tonight? Come and share with us. What has God given to you to say? It's not quite the same, because you only get one sermon in in a Baptist church service. Aren't you glad of that? Then they would have had all kinds of mini-sermons in the course of a synagogue service. And we can't quite be sure what one of those mini-sermons would have been like, but the odds are that some of the features that make Paul's sermon quite heavy going for us would have been part and parcel of a synagogue sermonette. The focus on the history of Israel as God's people, the significance of David as a man after God's own heart, the presentation of a fresh angle on how to understand and interpret some of the more obscure parts of the prophets and the Psalms. This particular sermon has been carefully analysed, and there are scholars who say it's it's done in the style of a a pro-aim sermon. Uh, and the readings would have been a reader from the Seder, which is a reader, a reading from the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. There's a reading from the Haftarah, which is from the prophets, which includes what we know as the historical books. And then there would have been an introductory text called the Proem, which acts as a bridge between the two readings that links them together, that must have at least one linguistic connection to the reading from the prophets. And the idea is you start with a proem and then there's a whole series of texts by which you work back to the original text from the Seder in the first five books of the Old Testament. And people have analysed this and said, well, the, the Seder reading would be God speaking to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And the word from the prophets or the historical books would have been God speaking to David in chapter, Samuel chapter 7, promising that he will build him a house. And the proem, the introductory text, would have been 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 14, where God says of David, this is a man after my my own heart. So people have analysed it and said this is probably how it all fitted together on that particular Sabbath. Who knows? If the leaders of the synagogue were giving marks out of ten, I'm not sure what they would have made of the structure of the sermon. I mean, to me, it looks a bit all over the place. Paul jumps around here, there and everywhere, fast-forwarding from Egypt to David, jumping straight to Jesus, then back to John the Baptist, then to Jesus' death and resurrection, then to three citations from Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16, one of which at least seems to have no relevance to the resurrection at all. Then we're back to David again, and then you've got a closing appeal to people to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. An appeal which is backed up with a not too subtle or complimentary warning that those who can't bring themselves to believe this message of salvation will be like those who the prophet Habakkuk said would wonder and perish as they scoffed at God's work. In fairness, perhaps to Paul, this, this, you can say this was an off-the-cuff kind of sermon. He hadn't prepared it in advance. Have you got a word of encouragement to share? Oh, yes. Um, okay, right. Let's see what I can say on the basis of these readings and put it together. But maybe, actually, I'm just reading the sermon through... 21st century Western eyes and not appreciating all the, the carefully detailed argument and structure that there is in it. But it's heavy going, I think, for us as we read it these days. But I suspect the structure of the sermon was the least of the synagogue rulers' worries. I don't suppose Paul spent too much time agonising however he, how he might have said things a bit differently, because the response of the congregation was amazing. 
As they left the synagogue, Paul and Barnabas were invited back the following week by popular demand. People were eager, desperate, keen to know more. And it's clear that a number of those listening responded to the message by accepting the grace of God for themselves. And the following week, they were so amazed by what they'd heard that the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is electrifying stuff. And the people who listened to Paul preaching were so divided between those who honoured the word of the Lord and put their faith in Christ and those who were so incensed by what they heard that they railroaded Paul and Barnabas out of town. Hmm. There's food for thought there. I read Luke's account of Paul's sermon and I have to say, it's not easy to follow, is it? I mean, there are two responses to it. Either you sit down and, and you struggle your way through it, looking up all the references, figuring out how it all fits together, and trying to get to grips with exactly the, the flow and what he's arguing about. Or I suspect a lot of us read it and think, oh, this is hard, and just kind of skim through it to the end and, and get back to the narrative, which is a bit more engaging and a bit interesting. In unguarded moments, when I struggle with reading, I actually think, oh, you know, I could have done a better sermon than that. In my more arrogant, unguarded moments, that is. But then I have to hit myself on the head mentally. Because the truth is, in 30 years of ministry, I've never preached a sermon that's got the entire town gathered to church the following week wanting to hear more. It's never happened. No sermon I've ever preached has had the kind of impact that that sermon did at Antioch. Nor has any sermon of mine proved to be so controversial that there's been a concerted effort to expel me from the region. I've not been invited back some places, but they've never kind of, you know, pushed me out and said, we never want to see you here again. So if sermons are to be measured in terms of their effectiveness, as surely they must be, then I have to acknowledge that Paul is way out of my league. Whatever I might feel about, you know, this is hard going, or the structure, or how easy, difficult it is to follow. Well, look at the results, people. That's what counts. And then I ponder your reaction to my sermon, which thankfully I'm in blissful ignorance of. I like to think that perhaps you talk about them after the service. And who knows what criteria you use to judge whether, well, that was a good sermon or not. I've lost count of the times of people have said to me, that was a great sermon you preached last week. I can't remember what you said, but it was a, <laughs> a really good sermon. Surely what makes a good sermon is it changes lives. And Paul's sermon in Antioch certainly did that. I wonder how something can be good if you don't remember much, much, don't remember much about it. I realise Saturday nights could be in that category, but Sundays, probably not. But people remembered Paul's sermon. It changed their lives and it made a difference because he confronted his hearers with Jesus. What's the culmination of the story of God's dealings with the people of Israel? Jesus. Who's the one who sits on David's throne? Jesus. Who was John the Baptist going on about? Jesus. Who did God raise from the dead after the rulers in Jerusalem had him executed? Jesus. Who's foretold in the Psalms and the Prophets? Jesus. Who's the key to understanding the authoritative message of the Old Testament? Jesus. Who offers you the forgiveness of sins? Jesus. Jesus from beginning 
to end. If I'm not preaching about Jesus, there's something wrong with my sermons. But that bit about Jesus being the one who can forgive people's sins, that's the radical bit in the message, actually. Arguably, it's the most important bit of the sermon. Verses 38 to 39. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could, be not, you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. It's a bit of a mouthful. I wonder if I stumbled over it. I prefer the contemporary English version. The message is that Jesus can forgive your sins. The law of Moses couldn't free you from all your sins. But everyone who has faith in Jesus is set free. So what was the problem with the law then? Why, why was there not forgiveness available under the law of Moses? Because it's not that the law was devoid of grace. It didn't set a standard that it was impossible to attain. It didn't refuse people second chances if they slipped up. It didn't lock people into a system where they were constantly looking over their shoulders, worried if they'd been good enough to qualify for God's approval or favour. If you got stuff wrong, the law made provision for forgiveness. All you had to do was repent and bring the required sacrifice to the temple and forgiveness was yours for the asking. It was a little bit unclear about whether you could be forgiven for deliberate sins. If you made a a mistake or did something stupid or by accident or unintentional, then the law provided a clear way back. But if you'd done something deliberately or on purpose, then wasn't quite so clear-cut. But when you read through Numbers, you see that provision was made for the forgiveness of such things as deception, theft, and lying, which, okay, you you can do by accident, but they look pretty deliberate to me. Um, And these serious crimes didn't put anyone beyond the pale. But the law did not provide a means of grace for anyone who committed a sin with what was called a high hand. And that's a sin that's not just deliberate. It's a sin committed in an attitude of defiance. I know I shouldn't do this, and I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care. I'm sinning against God, but that's irrelevant for the time being. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And it's not the gravity of the sin itself which matters so much, it's the attitude behind it. And for sins committed with a high hand, it's quite clear there is. No forgiveness under the Old Testament law. You couldn't be put right with God by offering a sacrifice at the tabernacle of the temple. And there's the difficulty, you see, because sometimes we do things not just through ignorance, not just through weakness, but by our own deliberate fault. Because knowing that something is wrong doesn't mean that we don't do it. Sin has this kind of effect on us that we can know what is wrong and we can know what is right and somehow we choose that one with a disregard for the consequences. And there are no mitigating circumstances, no excuses, no ways of spreading the blame or offloading the responsibility. We have done it caring nothing for the consequences for ourselves or for those we sin against. And there are times when, putting it simply and bluntly, we just don't deserve forgiveness. And if you have a guilty conscience over something like that, the memory of what you've done 
and the burden of guilt you carry and the sense of shame that stays with you when you think about it, these things can be a source of some pretty agonizing private moments. And these are the things that Paul says Jesus has dealt with. When you step beyond the pale of the law, when you do something and there is no clear way back, the forgiveness Jesus offers is still available to those who put their faith in him. And Jesus forgives us not because we deserve it, or because we can excuse it, or because in some way we're able to make up for what we've done or atone for it, not because you can see we never really meant to do it in the first place, or even because it doesn't really matter, because it certainly does, actually. But in Jesus, God forgives all our sins. And that's good news. Why and how does he do this? Well, think of the damage that you've done to yourself and other people by the things you've said, by the things you've done, all the things you've left unsaid, all the things you've left undone, all the attitudes of anger and resentment that you've stoked up in your heart against other people. God is against sin, not because he's petty or because he just wants to set high standards, because he knows how destructive and hurtful and harmful sin is to us and to other people. And Jesus took all that on himself on the cross. And by doing so, he opened up the path for forgiveness. Because what you have done can never be undone or altered. The consequences of it are unchangeable. And that knowledge can lock us into a a prison of guilt for the rest of our lives. But Jesus sets us free. Because whatever damage or hurt or harm we did to ourselves or somebody else, we also did it to Jesus on the cross. And he, as the Son of God, responds to all our hurt and anger and hate and sin and violence and guilt with forgiveness. Whenever we sin against somebody else, we sin against Christ. And his response is to pray for our forgiveness. Jesus brings us all, those of us who've sinned, those of us who've been sinned against, to the foot of the cross and he absorbs into himself all the damage we have done to ourselves and others. And as risen Lord, having taken all that into himself, our personal contribution to the sin and evil and suffering in the world, having absorbed all that, he assures us that even though we've done nothing to deserve it, he forgives us. He loves us. He gives us his grace. He calls us to forgive and love and extend grace to those who have wronged and hurt us as well. That makes the gospel of Jesus Christ a life-changing, liberating message. Brings hope where there is despair and grace to those who feel that they are beyond the pale. That's what brought people at Antioch back the following week to hear the good news. Why is Jesus the be-all and end-all as far as God is concerned? Because he is God's solution for a world gone wrong. He's the means by which God sets things right, one life 
at a time? Is it time for him to bring his forgiveness into your life? How do we receive it? It's by believing in Jesus Christ. Believing that he died on the cross to take your sin. To forgive you for what you have done. And he rose again from the dead to take charge of your life and point you in a different direction. And faith in Jesus is expressed in a simple prayer. Jesus, you know what I've done. I'm sorry for it. Forgive me for what I've done in the past. Come into my life as risen Lord and help me to live my life with you and for you in the future. Grace to cover the past. Grace to live a different way in the future. Grace given to those who don't deserve it. That's the difference Jesus makes. And people at Antioch that Sabbath were thrilled to hear the message and they responded by putting their faith in Jesus. You've heard the message. What's your response going to be to this sermon tonight or whenever it is that you listen to it? Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. It's good news to people who've lost hope for the future. It's good news to people who can't let go of the past. It's good news to people who feel that they've done things that mean they can't be acceptable in the sight of anybody else. Lord Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross to take the damage, the hurt, the guilt, the hatred and anger, all the dirt of human sin. Thank you that has risen, Lord, in place of all that, you give us your grace, your forgiveness, your love, your peace, your life. And thank you that that's given not to those who deserve it, but to everyone. Bring us to that point where we can believe that you have dealt with our sin. Release us from the past. Take charge of who we live and how we live for the future. Help us to live our lives for you, our risen Lord and Saviour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.